Let's Be Frank is a podcast centered on interpreting the life of Benjamin Franklin and the times that shaped his thoughts and soul. Some content may not be appropriate for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Greetings and salutations, dear listener. Welcome to another installment of Let's Be Frank, an auditory almanac for the curious mind, with me, your faithful friend and host, Dr. Benjamin Franklin, printer. Dear listener, today's episode is about revolution. It's about the quiet places where loud history is made, and it's about the Fifth Virginia Convention— We're about to embark upon another first, and let's be frank. We have the honor of welcoming our first guest on the show. Now, dear listener, I met a man yesterday evening walking upon High Street and looking simultaneously lost and astounded. After speaking with him for a time, I quickly came to realize why. Strolling through the sunlight of 18th century Philadelphia was a Virginian scholar from 2023. Now, how he had came to be there, I won't even begin to hypothesize about. But I did wish to take quick advantage of his knowledge, and how better to do so than to bring him into our little junto. Oh, and by the sound of the bell, it seems our guest of honor is here. And I believe he's just walked into the workshop. Good day, sir. Please, sit down. Now, to introduce him. Dr. William E. White is an American historian, educator, and museum professional. White received his Ph.D. in American Studies from the College of William and Mary in 1998 and his bachelor's in history from Christopher Newport University in 1976. Dr. White began his career working with the public and with schoolchildren as a teaching musician, costumed interpreter, and drum major for the Fife and Drum Corps at Colonial Williamsburg. He retired in 2016 as the Royce R. and Catherine M. Baker Vice President of Production, Publications, and Learning Ventures, where he led the Foundation's educational outreach programs, including History.org, book publishing, audio and video production, the National Teacher Development Initiative, the Electronic Field Trip Series, as well as interactive resources, lesson plans, and activity kits for K-16 classrooms. Dr. White has published frequently in journals and magazines. In addition, he wrote and produced the Colonial Williamsburg Primary Sources CD-ROMs for grades 1 through 3 and grades 4 through 6, with Pearson Scott Forsman, which won awards from Media and Methods and Technology and Learning magazines. Under his direction, the Colonial Williamsburg Electronic Field Trip Series broadcast interactive American history programming to all 50 states and won 16 regional Emmy Awards. He authored Pearson Scott Forsman's History Social Science for California for grades K-5, through Pearson's My World Social Studies for grades K-5, through and Colonial Williamsburg High School American History Digital Curriculum, The Idea of America. White is co-author of The Idea of America, How Values Shaped Our Republic, and Hold the Key to the Future, published in 2013. His most recent book, 
My America, an Owner's Guide, was published in 2017. In 2014, White was appointed by Governor Terry McAuliffe to Virginia's Standards of Learning Innovation Committee. And in 2019, he was appointed by Governor Northam to the Virginia Commission on African American History, Education in the Commonwealth. Currently, Dr. White works as a consultant, author, and teacher. He teaches American history and American studies at Christopher Newport University and is a distinguished visiting scholar at CNU's Center for American Studies. Whew, Dr. White, that is quite the curriculum vitae. We're honored to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being our inaugural guest on Let's Be Frank. Dr. Franklin, I'm pleased to be here. Now, to set the stage for today's discussion, it's May of 1776, and in Philadelphia City, the Continental Congress debates and deliberates on the shape and stance the colonies of North America will take on independence. Provincial assemblies throughout the colonies are having their own debates on what instructions they will send to their representatives in Congress, and in the small capital of Williamsburg, huge events are about to take shape that will end all those various debates and bring about one of the biggest political upheavals of the entire century. This assembly, called the Fifth Virginia Convention, was said by a junior delegate of that body to be an assembly of titans, no doubt because of the prolific figures in the room. Dr. White, could you paint a picture for our junto of the personalities who found themselves in the room? How did they come to be there, and what was at stake for them in that spring of 1776? Well, it didn't just happen in an instant. This had been brewing for years at this point. At the first of the Virginia Conventions meets in 1774 in response to the fact that uh, Lord Dunmore had dissolved the House of Burgesses and, uh, and the um, Port of Boston had been closed. And Virginians were trying to decide what to do about that. Meetings of county constituents began to gather together and um, expressed their interest in having a, um, a non-importation association to protest uh, British actions. And so the, um, the old members of the House of Burgesses had met and, and decided that they would go for uh, this kind of thing, but then um, decided also that uh, they really needed to um, have a larger gathering, not just a rump session to decide these kinds of things. And so they called for a convention. And the first of those conventions, uh, the, the delegates are um, elected by constituents, but they're not elected to the House of Burgesses. They're elected to a Virginia convention, an extra-legal body, uh, which then gathers in Williamsburg and uh, decides to put together a non-importation association that uh, Virginians will stop importing British goods until the Intolerable Acts have been repealed. And once that step is taken, then they also have to figure out how it is that they're going to enforce that association. And so in each county, in each city, committees are elected, put together, appointed, depending on which county or city you're in, to enforce the association. Um, and so suddenly you see this whole extra-legal system setting up in Virginia that bypasses the, uh, bypasses the um, House of Burgesses. It bypasses the local magistrates at the county court. 
Um, it bypasses uh, the city's aldermen. It bypasses all of the regular order. And uh, in order to um, enforce this protest, unfortunately, unlike the heady days of uh, stamp back protest and towns and duties, uh, this one's not going to go away easily. And uh, so consequently, the language gets more and more strident. The enforcement of non-importation gets more and more strident. People begin to draw lines in Virginia uh, in ways that they really had not done before. Um, they begin to form armed companies in uh, every county to enforce the association and to enforce American patriotism uh, in each of the uh, counties. And so suddenly there's an armed body of men roaming around um, uh, inspecting warehouses and uh, looking for contraband goods and uh, uh, listening to what people say. And if they're not expressing the right opinions, they're being called out by armed men to apologize and to uh, make an account for themselves. Um, and some of this stuff is, is um, I mean, it, it's really fascinating. So the, um, in Williamsburg, the, the Reverend Guatkin, who is uh, at the uh, College of William and Mary, a, a well-known individual um, in and about town, uh, Thomas Jefferson and Richard Henry Lee invite him to uh, write a defense of the Continental Congress. And he refuses. Um, he demurs. He, he says, no, I don't think I want to do that. And so an armed body of men make their way to the college to convince him it's the right thing for him to do. Things have, uh, in a very short period of time, things have become strident in a way that they were not before. And there are individuals in Virginia who um, are benefiting from this in some interesting ways. So, for example, all through the 1760s and into the 1770s, um, Baptist congregations had been forming in Virginia. Uh, evangelicals who um, refused resolutely refused to allow Virginia courts to examine their ministers, license their congregations, um, and uh, abide by the um, act of toleration. But uh, when, as the revolution is coming on here in 1774 and 1775, these evangelicals are strident um, supporters of uh, this patriot movement and uh, the Whig movement here in Virginia. So the gentlemen who are being elected to the uh, House of Burgesses and being elected to the Virginia Convention, um, the Whig gentlemen need to have their support. Suddenly there's an opportunity here for a change in the order of uh, things. You know, sir, it's a marvel to me that in a period of two years, 1774 to 1776, the colony of Virginia, which is famed for its moderation and old-world values of aristocracy, heraldry, and British pride, should in many ways become the most revolutionary. Now, in the midst of these times, were these two bodies, the House of Burgesses and the Virginia Convention, meeting simultaneously, one trying to maintain order and the status quo, and the other subverting royal authority? Well, yes, the, the House of Burgesses uh, continues to meet when the governor allows for it to meet. As a matter of fact, at, at one point, the, um, one of the Virginia conventions had um, 
uh, established a committee to examine some uh, actions that the governor had taken about assigning uh, new ways to uh, license and assign land. Um, that report then is uh, is delivered to the House of Burgesses, which accepts the report. And I mean, you know, so so there's some blurring of the lines here. I think they're also being very careful. Uh, very careful to make sure that the Whig protest movement is not um, right in the governor's face. And so um, the Virginia Convention will do things um, that uh, Dunmore will find, um, uh, Lord Dunmore, the governor, will find uh, distressing, but the House of Burgesses will not do that, right? So there's um, some deniability, right? There's still a functioning government. How much overlap was there between the Virginia Convention and the House of Burgesses? And were these two bodies composed of the same men? By and large, when you look at, when you look at the election um, results, um, and, and we don't have all the election results for the, um, for the conventions, but those that we have, when you look at them, almost exactly the same people are, are being <laughs> elected. I mean, it, but they're in two separate elections, uh, which, is, which is kind of interesting. At the same time, the Virginia Convention um, is able to step out and do some things that um, that the House of Burgesses just simply can't do. So when the convention meets in Richmond, um, this is this is what everybody remembers Mr. Henry's speech. And I mean, it's interesting because the only accounts we have of Mr. Henry's speech are written many years after Henry's speech, but everyone remembers Henry's speech and. Um, what he's doing at, uh, at the time is he's calling for uh, Virginia counties to arm themselves in preparation for um, an invasion that he is absolutely certain will happen um, of, uh, of British soldiers. Now, he, now, he's doing this in advance of Lexington and Concord, um, and, and he'll begin that by saying, uh, you know, uh, just... Uh, you know, shortly here, we're going to hear from the North that uh, the, the clash of resounding arms. Um, he's saying, get ready for this, get ready for this. Now, the House of Burgesses could never have done that. There's already a military structure in Virginia. There's a militia system and a military structure, and it's all controlled by the governor. So what the Whigs are doing here in the convention is they're setting up an entirely separate military structure that is um, is not connected to the governor. It's connected to the county uh, committees of safety. It's connected to the Virginia Convention. It's connected to the revolutionary movement. And so you you get this weird dual system beginning to develop. I suspect most of us here can speak loosely of the events of 1776 that led to our Declaration of Independence. But as we look to the Fifth Virginia Convention, when did the thought of independency come to the mind of Virginia? I think that independency begins to come to mind in the late summer of 1775. You probably will remember that uh, in April, um, at the same time Lexington Concord is going on, the royal governor removes gunpowder from the magazine in uh, Williamsburg. And um, this, causes, uh, this causes an uproar. Troops, organized by our friend Mr. Henry, troops actually march on the city of Williamsburg. They're stopped before they get to the city of Williamsburg. 
and a deal is negotiated out on the outskirts of town. At this point, the revolutionaries, the Whigs, cannot deny the fact that there's been an armed action, and neither can the royal governor. And tempers begin to flare at this point. Dunmore that summer will leave capital of Williamsburg and take up residence uh, on uh, royal naval ships in the James River and the Chesapeake Bay. And the House of Burgesses will uh, condemn him for having left the seat of government. I think this is the point at which uh, you have uh, some Virginians saying, um, we're being deserted. And if we're being deserted, then it's time for us to establish our own government. And so from the summer of 1775 for the next year, um, this, is the, this is the discussion that uh, is going on. And we know that this discussion is, is not just happening in the Virginia Convention. It's not just happening with gentlemen. Uh, because for the um, election of the 5th Virginia Convention, we have notices uh, in, the, in the public newspapers that, um, that uh, constituents have gathered together and held meetings at a variety of different counties. Um, James City County is one. Um, and they have discussed the issue and they are instructing their delegates to the 5th Virginia Convention to vote for independence. So here we are, the spring of 1776. And Dr. White, can you walk us through that eventual vote for independence? The vote for independence actually comes fairly quickly in Virginia. Members of the um, 5th Virginia Convention have been elected they begin arriving in Williamsburg, and they begin meeting by the 15th of May. By the 15th of May, they have penned a resolution declaring that Virginia is free and independent, and they pass that resolution. The second resolution they pass is a resolution to um, their delegates at the Continental Congress to make a motion for uh, independence. I, um, I tell students all the time, you know, we... We get this picture of what a Congress is, and then we superimpose that on the Continental Congress. But as you know, um, that's not how the Continental Congress was working. So each, uh, each colony has its own delegation, and all of those delegations are um, bound by instructions from legislators at home. They are representatives of those home legislatures, and so they are waiting for instructions. They're not acting independently. Um, so that's, that's what makes uh, Virginia's resolution so important. Virginia will, uh, will um, declare itself independent and then make a motion for American independence that then the Congress will vote on. So is it fair to say that Virginia and that specific event in Williamsburg was the catalyst that set the topic of independence into motion? Yes, yes. There, there had been, um, uh, there had been um, discussion of it. Um, North Carolina, for example, um, uh, instructs its delegates that they may vote for independence, but under no circumstances are they supposed to propose it. Okay? If someone else proposes it, they can vote for it. Um, so we know that discussion is going on, but uh, Virginia is the colony that will actually lay the motion before the Congress. Now, that wasn't the only historic event that took place at that convention. After that resolution, 
they went on to create a new government that would become the basis of many new governments throughout these new independent states. Dr. White, what was this new government? Why was it unique? And who were the personalities in the room that built this new government? Well, um, the first thing the first thing that happens is that they set up a process that every other colony will end up following. And um, that process is you first write a Bill of Rights. What is this government designed to protect? Um, so you write that and you establish that. Then secondly, you form a government in order to execute the the um, standards that you you uh, created in the Bill of Rights. So the first job then is to write the Bill of Rights. And it starts out, quite frankly, as a mess. And then um, George Mason arrives in town. Mason uh, Mason's one of these characters who does not like to be um, at, um, at these conventions. He does not like to be elected to these things. Um, and uh, so he drags his feet and he gets here late. Um, <laughs> And then he looks at the, um, the mess that they're making of the, um, the committee to write the um, Declaration of Rights. And he basically says, OK, just go away and leave me alone. Uh, <laughs> and he sits down. And, and so the, uh, we have there uh, a draft um, that um, and, and the Virginia Declaration is, is substantially his. Um, others will make contributions. Uh, others will make changes. But. For all intents and purposes, it's Mason's. Uh, he's the one who's able to sit down and um, and articulate all of these things. Um, so that's uh, that's the first step. Once they've adopted, and there are some contentious things in this in this declaration as well. So um, the first draft, for example, simply says that all men are created free and equal, and um, they have to figure out how it is that they're going to account for slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so they add a phrase, uh, when uh, all men, when they enter into a state of society, mm. which is a free choice, right? Um, so um, they're, they're very conscious of, uh, of what they're doing. Um, they're very conscious of the world that they live in. They're very conscious of maintaining much of the status quo, um, but then they turn around um, and um, and offer up a a, um, a resolution for freedom of religion, which is striking. Um, this is um, this is Virginia, where the Church of England has ruled, where the um, where the Act of Toleration has been in effect. But Baptists have been persecuted because they wouldn't follow the act of toleration, and suddenly we're proposing freedom of religion. It's a concession. It's a concession to those Baptists who have, uh, who have uh, supported the Whig cause so well, um, and, uh, and they're demanding concessions. And, and so you can see that this is a really active uh, discussion, conversation. Um, they also then um, um, begin to list out all uh, um, Things like uh, there's a right to representative government, uh, that um, you have a right to free and open elections, you have um, a right to fair trials. These are all issues that, um, these are all complaints they have with, uh, with the British government. 
um, issues of representation and uh, um, trial by jury and all of these things, right? They're listing these off as essential elements that they've got to have in a new government. In your opinion, were they boldly looking at that point at the idea of establishing a republican form of government using democracy or instead were they looking at upholding the government they had always known but putting forward the sentiment that power should come from the people that's a really difficult question because um on the one hand on the one hand they're very conscious of the fact that they're creating something new and you see it in the government that they actually create create on the flip side of the coin, it is not a democracy. Okay, so um, the franchise is not expanded. Um, you still must own property. You must be white. You must be male. Um, so the franchise is not, uh, the religion clause is removed, but the franchise is not expanded drastically. Um, the, um, at, at the same time, um, so they're electing a, a house of uh, um, a general assembly, um, but they're also electing a second body, which Virginia had never had before, and that's a Senate. Um, so they suddenly go from uh, the, the House of Burgesses to suddenly a bicameral legislature. Interesting. But in reaction to what, um, what Americans perceive as excesses of the, um, of the king and um, the um, executive branch, um, it's the legislature that elects the governor. The governor is not elected by popular vote. And the governor only serves one-year terms and the governor is not allowed to select his own advisors. Um, the, the advisors are selected by the legislature. So you see the shift all the way to the side of, um, of, uh, of the legislature as the best form, of, uh, best form of government, if you will, away from the chief executive. And then, you, and you're going to see that pattern repeated over and over and over as uh, as colonies begin to declare their independence. Would it be fair to say that this government was the great grandfather of the federal government that was drafted eleven years later? Well, yes. I mean, um, this uh, Virginia's new government and and uh, this this process established the Bill of Rights. Um, um, the, um, write a constitution, which is new. The very idea that you can have government by contract is new. Uh, then uh, begins a process where other um, other um, states are adopting the same sort of process um, as uh, that's uh, as that's moving forward. And that's that that's the that's the that's the core of the anti-federalist uh, argument. Uh, t that uh, says you should not ratify this constitution because they did not specify what rights this government will, will protect. And therefore, you can assume that government, which always wants to take the rights away from the people, um, this, that this government is designed to take the rights away from the people. Fascinating. So what would you say, Dr. White, in your opinion, is the legacy of the Fifth Virginia Convention? What makes it such a noteworthy event, worthy of our curiosity? The Fifth Virginia Convention is the launching pad for American representative government. Um, it's the launching pad for 
um, constitutional government, constitutional republics. Um, it uh, and I I think that it is the um, almost the logical conclusion of uh, the revolutionary movement. All of those threads, all of those complaints, all of those worries, all of those uh, um, all of those aspirations, all of the hopes seem to all coalesce there um, in May, June, and July as uh, Virginians try to figure out how to establish a constitutional government. The end of one chapter and the beginning of another. Now the final question is for you, Dr. White. Now what is it about studying and teaching history that sets you on fire? For me, when we... When you look back at history, you see the actions of individuals. And for me, that's the realization that we, each of us, each of us um, has a role. Each of us makes a difference. Each of us shapes the place we live in, the world we live in. Um, Each of us touches the world. Um, And if you look at history, you can see how thousands and thousands of individuals, Dr. Franklin's, as well as uh, uh, everyday men and women, um, shape the future and have shaped the future of uh, this place we call America, this idea that we call America. Dr. White, we thank you for being our inaugural guest on Let's Be Frank. It's been a pleasure. Now, my dear sir, I have a bottle of Madeira that has been aging in my cellar. I should say you and I should sit by the fire this evening, have more conversations about my time and yours. But in the meantime, let's say farewell to our junto and and then continue this conversation. Now, dear listener, what lesson can we derive from the events of the 5th Virginia Convention leading into the summer of 1776 that great decisions are always revolutionary, but to make them last, something new and better must be on the other side of those great decisions. It needn't be perfect, and it may be the work of blood and sweat and compromise, but the important thing isn't what shape those new things take, The only thing that matters is the effort, is the half-step, is the progress. In that view, I suspect all of us are capable of doing acts over the course of our life that are truly revolutionary. That's all for today's installment. Would that we had more hours in the day, but as always, we have nothing but time between us. Resources and images from this week's episode can be found in the journal at www.bfranklinlive.com. If you like the show, subscribe and stay up to date with all the latest gossip and news, and do me the kindness of leaving a review. You can follow us on Instagram at bfranklinlive, and, dear listener, spread the word. Tell your family, tell your neighbors, tell your horse, I don't care— Let's make our intellectual junto grow. And now, dear listeners, 
our time together must come to an end. Fare thee well. And always remember, when you're good to others, you are best to yourself. Until we meet again, I remain your humble and obedient servant, Dr. Benjamin Franklin, printer. Stay curious, my friends.